Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Donovan Moser has asked us to review The Longest Yard, released August 30th, 1974. It was written by Tracy Keenan Wynn and Albert S. Ruddy, directed by Robert Aldrich, and released by Paramount Pictures. Albert S. Ruddy developed the story in the late 60s and hired Tracy Keenan Wynn based on the strength of a TV movie script for The Glass House in 1972 about life in prison. The germ of the idea came from a friend of Ruddy's whose dreams of a professional football career were shattered by an injury that sent the man's life into a downward spiral. This is essentially where Burt Reynolds' protagonist Paul Crewe starts the film. Ruddy had a deal at Paramount, for whom he had just produced the first Godfather film. Director Aldrich said that the film's third act came directly from 1947's Body and Soul, on which he had served as an assistant director. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Aldrich claim to borrow from Body and Soul specifically to inspire the plot of his film? No. All the Marbles, hmm. which Aldrich also directed. Beyond Aldrich's comparisons to Body and Soul, the film has also been recognized as essentially a remake of the 1962 Hungarian film Two Half Times in Hell, based on the famous Ukrainian deathmatch game of World War II. Do you guys recall the last remake of Two Half Times in Hell we've covered on the show? I'm going to say Victory? Yeah, or Escape to Victory. The production was first announced to shoot in Oklahoma at the McAllister Penitentiary, but a last-minute riot at the prison forced a change of venue to Georgia. The cooperation of then-Governor Jimmy Carter was integral to getting the production moved to Georgia State Prison in Reedsville. Do you guys recall the last time Governor Carter helped Reynolds keep a movie under budget by assisting in moving the production to Georgia? Gator? No. Cannonball Run? No. Did we even cover Gator? Smokey <laughs> and We covered White Lightning. White Lightning, thank you. <laughs> but that's not the answer either. Smokey and the Bandit? No. Deliverance? Deliverance. <laughs> like, okay. What Both Burt films Reynolds? feature special thanks to Jimmy Carter in the Oh, credits. yeah. And I didn't realize that like the Appalachia went all the way down into Georgia. That's right. Now I remember. On a budget of less than $3 million, it brought in 43 in the box office. $43 million, not $43. Editor Michael Luciano was nominated for an Oscar, but the award went to Carl and Howard F. Kress for The Towering Inferno. An Oscar for editing on this? Must have been a light year. <laughs> well, it, it does take some editing turns toward in the third act. Yeah. All of a sudden, like, where did all this start coming Why from? Why are there split screens <laughs> everywhere? Since its release, the film has been remade three times. The first as 2001's Mean Machine, which resets the location to England and the sport to association football, with former footballer Vinnie Jones, a.k.a. Bullet Tooth Tony, in the Burt Reynolds part. I remember that. Yeah, it's all right. I watched it uh, this week. Uh, it has David Kelly, which is uh, Tim Burton's Grandpa Joe. And he takes over the Pop Stedman role. Jason Statham is Shockner, the guy that's always doing martial arts. And David Hemmings is the prison governor with his crazy curly eyebrows, his Hal Holbrook mm -hmm. lashes. Four years later, in 2005, another American remake under the original film's title replaced Reynolds with Adam Sandler. Though Reynolds himself appears in the film as the team's coach Scarborough, even wearing the same jersey number from the original film. Scarborough's, Scarborough's original number or Burt Reynolds' original Burt number? Burt Reynolds' original number. Chris Rock is in the film as caretaker. The warden is James Cromwell. The head of guards is William Fitchner. Unger is David Patrick Kelly, who we just saw in The Warriors. Warriors! He's like the shitty guy that's trying to it's pretty take good. over the manager's spot. It's pretty good casting. Yeah, like, the cast is really great. Like James Cromwell is like perfect like as like corporate like prison guy or corporate guy. Right. Yeah. Tracy Morgan is one of the cheerleaders. Terry Crews is another inmate who can summon McDonald's products from the ether, and he just <laughs> walks around offering people McDonald's food. The original guard, Captain Ed Lauder, also comes back for a cameo. The third remake is an Egyptian film, also focused on association football, called Egypt's Captain or Captain of Egypt, but I was unable to locate a copy of that film before this review. Oh, I forgot to mention that the, the warden's secretary in the Adam Sandler version is Cloris Leachman. <laughs> that, that's... 
I think that's actually the, the one improvement of the film is to have the secretary be someone who he doesn't want to spend those 15 minutes <laughs> with. But he has to to get the film. We open on a disheveled living room. An ashtray overflows with cigarette butts. Every surface is covered in empty liquor bottles. An unseen girlfriend criticizes someone for watching football all day. Up close, we see a man's hand holding the clicker and turning off the game. It's going to be... Thank God. Turns out, the football-watching boyfriend, Paul Crew, played by Burt Reynolds, is now asleep. The girl tries to wake him for sex, and he violently throws her to the floor. He seems heavily intoxicated as he tries to dress himself on the way out. The girl calls him a whore and pokes and prods at him about how he owes her everything. He finds her car keys, and she tries to wrestle them away from him. She warns him against stealing her Maserati, even slapping him hard, and he throws her head against the wall and then across the Spanish tile floor. I don't, I don't think I'm clear on what their relationship is. She's just a girlfriend who pays his bills right now because he's a celebrity footballer. But wouldn't he be able to pay the bills because... I think she's rich and he's not right now. Mm. Doesn't get like a pension or anything like that from the football? No, I think he, he got thrown out for cheating and that disqualifies him of everything that he gets from the league. He drives her Citroen off the property and she calls the police on him. It quickly evolves into a high-speed chase and Paul drives the car through a local park. Moving through a parking lot, he tears a shopping cart out of a woman's hands with the car. He speeds toward a bridge, which is raising for a passing boat, but then slams on his brakes and reverses over the lifting edge to lose the cops. Uh, when I, when they show a close-up of the dashboard, uh there's you know it's speedometer and tachometer right but i've never seen a tachometer tachometer a tachometer uh where it's not in 1000 increments it's just every individual one well no it's it's in groups of 10 yeah um so it's instead of like being the the single digit number times 1000 it's a double digit number times 100 weird um and so when he was driving and, it, and so i was i was watching the tachometer and it said 40 i was like he's only going 40 miles an hour <laughs> this is, nope, this is like going way of faster <laughs> he drives the car to west palm beach parks it and steps out from outside the car he puts it in drive and sends it over a ledge into the water stunt coordinator and regular reynolds collaborator hal needham said that as they were fishing the citron out of the water a civilian who'd been standing around all day understood that this car was a prop in a Burt Reynolds movie and offered 7,000 cash for it as soon as they set it down on the ground. <laughs> he, like, took possession of it immediately. Awesome. Crew is drinking at a bar when the cops finally find him. He doesn't deny any of what he's done today, but he makes jokes about it. Even the cops laugh with him until he starts poking fun at the height of the shorter cop. Eventually, he starts a fistfight with them and is arrested on many charges. Now we got you. We got you for stealing a car, drunk and driving, drunk in public, and resisting arrest. You want to try for something else? Yeah, I'm going to make you taller. And he kicks the short cop in the nuts. We cut right to crew in the back of a police car being driven to the local prison. They pass a chain gang along the road. Crew and two other prisoners are escorted inside Citrus State Prison. As Crew is being processed, he's getting a haircut from the prison barber, and a cop asks if it's true that he was once paid $10,000 to shave off his mustache for TV. After Crew confirms, the cop shaves off half of Crew's mustache right here. How about giving me $5,000 worth? <laughs> Coming right off. There's about $2,500, $3,000, 4000 coming up. 5000 about four years later, Reynolds would shave his mustache in half again when he was dared to by Tonight Show guest host Steve Martin as they tried to decide if he looks better with or without it. <laughs> He's doing it. He's actually doing it, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is really fun. That takes a while. Huh? Well, actually, it's good because it's getting the hair out of my nose, too. <laughs> the, there's a couple... There's a weird shot uh, because this is an actual prison that they're Right, shooting. yes. Yeah. So when he, when he first... Uh, enters the prison there's like a guard who's like uh, manually opening kind of like it's not an airlock but it's like an airlock system where you open one door right let it close and then close yeah Uh, and he's got a mirror in his little like workstation so that he can see when people are out of the doorway right and I thought well that would be great like you could see down the hall or something like that but no you just see his reflection in the mirror yeah so it's just the guard's face you see the guard's face but then in the mirror, it's also the car's face. Right. And I was like, well, this, this is... It's not useful. It's not a useful shot. It's not interesting at all. Next, crew is led to Captain Knauer's office. Knauer here is played by Ed Lauder. He swats a nightstick hard into crew's ribs. 
He informs Crew that he runs the football team here, and that when the warden asks Crew to take over, he needs to refuse. Coming out of Knauer's office, Crew is noticed by an older man mopping the floor, who we will come to know as Scarborough. Knauer leads Crew to the warden's office, and on the way, they encounter the warden's secretary, Miss Toot, played by Bernadette Peters. Her hair here is bigger than her, like the rest of her head. Like, yeah. It's, she's got a whole like Mars Attacks thing happening. <laughs> That's exactly my note. <laughs> Warden Hazen, played by Eddie Albert, is very excited to meet Crew. While Warden Hazen speaks to Crew, a man in the corner of the office records their conversation on a handheld tape recorder. And I was sure this was going to come back. Yeah. I was like, what is the purpose of this character? Just a guy who records some things that are said in yeah, this room. Yeah, some things. But I guess the implication, I guess we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it, but is that he's digging up dirt? Does... Let me ask you right now. I'm going to ask. Does the warden know he's recording? Yeah. Okay. He's holding a tape recorder in his lap. Yeah, but but there's like But a... so does Crew. He's not going to get dirt from anyone here. I think he's literally just documenting this guy's services as warden for some future... Reason. Yeah, for, for some future book or something for his memoirs. Hazen is very proud of the prison's semi-pro record. Mr. Crew, what do you think of semi-pro ball? Semi-pro is a joke. Just as Knauer predicted, he tries to rope him into taking over the football team, but Crew turns the warden down as requested. Hazen even promises Crew a comfortable prison stay in exchange for helping out with the team. Crew says he just wants to do his time silently. Consequently, Crew is assigned to swamp reclamation. I always like that term, like, the swamp took this away from us. <laughs> Give it back, swamp! Crew is left outside with the secretary, while Hazen lectures Knauer on the poor performance of the football team. Crew flirts with Miss Toot, and she seems resistant to his charms until he gets more direct with his comments. Did you ever do it standing up? All right, let's move it. After Crew is dragged out of the room, a smile crosses Miss Toot's face. Right outside, Knauer beats up Crew for doing exactly what he asked him to do. The next day, the prisoners are driven to a swamp, and Crew is handcuffed to an African-American prisoner named Granville. They call this a make-work day, and the men are instructed to dig swamp water up and move it a few feet to the side with no clear goal or purpose. We get our first shot of the irritating Unger character, serving up today's lunch to everyone. He's a trustee, so he doesn't have to do the work everyone else is doing, and he's rubbing it in their faces. We also see another older trustee prisoner, Pop, ladling everyone's beverages as the line moves by. Crew doesn't realize why everyone seems to hate him until his friend Caretaker explains that these people have all been poor for life, but that Crew had it good and gave it up for no clear reason. They're especially upset with him for having allegedly shaved points in a professional football game, which they all consider to be the greatest crime of all. All I'm saying is you could have robbed banks, sold dope, stole your grandmother's pitching checks, and none of us would have minded shaving points off of a football game. Man, that's un-American. Because they're gamblers? No, because football is like an honorable profession to Football them. is life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just assumed it was because they would have lost money on it. They actually care about football. Well, in the Mean Machine remake, there is a big-time gangster who lost a bunch of money on the game that he cheated points in. So yeah. they, they use that in the second film, but in this film it doesn't play into anything, the points that he cheated. Why don't you do it? It's a long story. Well, I got eight years. Crew and Granville's lunch is interrupted when they're ordered to lift a huge tree trunk in the swamp. Unclear again what purpose they have for any of this work. They just kind of pick it up and they put it back down and there you go. Picking it up, boss. Not today, boy. <laughs> One prisoner keeps wandering near Crew and doing different varieties of push-ups to show off. Crew strikes up a conversation with Pop, the old trustee from the lunch line. Evidently, 30 years back, he punched a guard and got his sentence extended. That guard is now Warden Hazen. That night... Pop notices Crew trying to rest and yanks him out of bed before a guard notices because no one's allowed to sleep before lights out. Crew drags himself to the guard shack and demands to see the warden before passing out. The next day, we see the men in the swamp doing more pointless mud rearranging. Crew and the weird push-up guy start pranking each other back and forth by dumping mud down each other's boots. All the other prisoners think it's very funny. The pranking ends with Crew dumping a huge chunk of mud down the man's pants. Even the guards are cracking up about it, and finally the two men start fighting in the mud. Knauer pulls up and watches the fighting for a moment as all the prisoners go quiet. Eventually the two guys fighting break into laughs and Knauer is quickly pissed off. He sentences Crew to 24 hours in the hot box. 
Kanauer tries to hit him with a nightstick, and Crew catches it in the air and jabs it hard in his gut. Another guard opens fire at the ground beneath them to dissuade any further attacks. After some time in the hotbox, Crew is pulled out to speak with the warden. The warden sits Crew down to watch his football team, made up of all the guards from the prison. He asks Crew for any tips he might have, and Crew says a tune-up game would go a long way. A what? A tune-up game like the pros have. You know, you find yourself some hungry semi-pro team that's not in your league, you bring them in here and you kick the shit out of them. <laughs> Hazen is so amused at the idea that he orders Crew to start a team of prisoners with him as the quarterback to be that losing team. Crew puts up some resistance, but Hazen doesn't want to hear it. As old Mr. Sam used to say, in this institution, to get along, you go along. Crew says he only has 18 months here, and he's not going to do anything to endanger that. The warden reminds him that he assaulted a guard, the captain of the guards, and his sentence can be extended as long as it needs to be. He has four weeks to put a team together in exchange for early parole. Caretaker seems to have made himself the manager of the con team, and he's wearing a handwritten manager sweatshirt. He made a little sign-up sheet and tacked it to the bulletin board outside the bunks. Caretaker is able to sell the men on joining when he explains that it means less swamp work and a chance to injure some of the guards. The crazy push-ups guy takes it a step further. You get a free crack at the guards. Not to mention you have a chance to kill one of them. Legal! Bullshit, I ain't signing that damn thing. Come on, everybody, let's get in the We see a group of African-American prisoners finding the sign-up sheet, and one man points out that if Crew was willing to sell out his whole NFL team down the river, then there's no reason he wouldn't do it to fellow prisoners. The older guy we saw mopping earlier approaches Crew to offer his services as a team coach. Well, I can help you. I'm Nate Scarborough. Nate Scarborough, Giants? Yeah. Step in my office. Scarborough is the character that Burt Reynolds returns to play in the Adam Sandler remake of the film. Scarborough points out that the team won't go far without any black players, but Crew doesn't know how to recruit any. Not that he's tried literally anything. All he did was put a sign-up sheet. Right. It's like, maybe talk to them for five seconds. Scarborough says he's watched every game the guards have played, and he knows everything they do wrong. You just got yourself a job, head coach. Crew, caretaker, and Scarborough, with Pop as a lookout, break into a filing cabinet with the records of all the prisoners they have signed so far, and all the people they should be going after still. Strangle both wives with pantyhose. Triple murder, including body dismemberment. Hacked mother with meat cleaver. Charming, charming. Hey, better double check the ones with two stars on them because they're the most violent. You got any with three stars? Kanauer tries to talk Hazen out of the game, but Hazen assures him it will only work to their advantage. Caretaker claims he can get any kind of steroids or drugs that Crew might want for the team, and Crew asks Scarborough what Caretaker could actually deliver on. He can get you laden here with a woman. What more can I tell you? Yeah. Crew asks if Caretaker could get his hands on the medical files of the guards to find out what past injuries and weaknesses they might have. Caretaker and crew head out to recruit Sonny Tannen. The prisoner is severely mentally handicapped. He doesn't even know the rules of football, and he could barely say the word. Sonny gets very excited, though, at the prospect of injuring guards without getting in trouble for it. He starts tossing hay bales like they weigh nothing, when, in actuality, bales this size would weigh about 800 pounds. What? No. Yes. So they must be hollow well yeah i mean i i imagine that they were movie prop like but the bales that size are 800 pounds yeah that's what my research indicated that does not sound right well i couldn't get the one that i made up on the scale <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know why i made it next they go to see a prisoner named simply indian and crew is warned in advance by caretaker not to make ethnic jokes first thing we got to do is get you transferred out of here and on the football field how Crew turns to Caretaker for support, struggling not to make a joke. Well, we'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> that face that he makes is so perfect. And it's like, I think it's the best way to handle this joke without saying anything that's actually offensive. Right. <laughs> it's just it's just amusing that it's like so tempting for him to make a joke here. But he doesn't make it. Next, they head out to the yard where they find Richard Keel as George Sampson lifting 400-pound weights over his head. When Crew goes to shake the man's hand, it looks like Keel is holding a doll's hand. <laughs> it's just so tiny. It's adorable. As soon as Samson hears that he'll be playing against the guards, he's on board. Samson, huh? Don't cut your hair. That night, while discussing strategies, Crew realizes that Scarborough has his sights on a win, where Crew just wanted to survive the game. 
Scarborough tries to explain what this would mean to the prison population to show the guards up in such an embarrassing way. The next day, Crew goes to speak with the African-American players that Scarborough wanted him to recruit. Granville is the first to break with the group in exchange for a promise that he'll get to play. We get a quick training montage of the team, and we see just how incompetent they are on the field. A few standouts make impressive moves, like when Sampson breaks a full-size tackling bag off a chain. Mm -hmm. Their defensive line leaves a lot to be desired, and Crew thinks it's time to recruit a few more players. First, they find Schockner, who appears to live in solitary, and he's let out for an hour a day, so he does lots of taekwondo moves in a small courtyard. Unger approaches Crew, petitioning to take Caretaker's place as the team manager. Unger gets maybe my favorite line of the film when Caretaker reminds him, the position is filled. Beat it, Unger. Fuck off! Okay, I, I have to go back. You are very wrong about the weight of those bales. <laughs> oh, well, IMDb trivia is then. Okay, IMDb trivia is very wrong. That is anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds, depending on if it's a two-stringer or a three-stringer. What if it's a three-stringer? Then it's probably closer to 100 pounds. But still, not 800 pounds. <laughs> At least 1,000 pounds, though. Maybe he I, threw eight of them. I was going to say, maybe it was... 80 pounds and imdb just was off Type by a decimal it? place <laughs> no it looks it looks heavier than that i'm gonna say about 800 pounds okay that's rock <laughs> perfect the scene is played in a very similar way for the first remake mean machine when unger is turned down for the manager position massive's manager <laughs> yeah i know but i'm better than him because well i had trials didn't i so we all had trials mate that's why we're here <laughs> Fuck up! Shockner is released from his cell and allowed to visit with crew. Like Samson, he is quick to agree when he learns he can injure guards. The next day at practice, Samson busts through the line to tackle crew, but the new defensive lineman, Shockner, punches Samson directly in the face, breaking his nose. Hey, I don't want to play this game. He broke my nose. I'm, I'm going to fix it. Okay? <laughs> it's such a great turn for the character to be a big crybaby about yeah. it. Yeah. Crew offers to snap it back in place, and they claim it looks better now than it did before. <laughs> I love Keel's delivery of this next line, because it, it feels so anachronistic what he says here. He says, yo, he did that on purpose. <laughs> yo, he did that on purpose. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. <laughs> Just the fact that he starts with yo made me laugh so hard. He's like, yo, he did that on purpose. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, yes, he did. Crew asks Schockner to issue an apology, which he does. Scarborough notices Unger sneak away from practice, and we see him reporting to Knauer about the team's progress. Unger seems to think that Granville is the biggest threat on the team, so later we'll see guards try to lure him into a fight, but he doesn't take the bait. The rest of Granville's friends are so impressed by his patience that they agree to join Crew's team. Crew offers them all the same rewards we saw offered to the team in victory earlier this season. No work details, special meals, etc. Well, Mr. Crew, looks like we've come to terms. Compliments from the Greater Chicago Youth Authority. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Sometime later, Crew meets with the warden at Crew's request. He suggests to the warden that Unger is feeding Kanawa information and asks that he be banned from practices. The warden asks what Crew is hiding up his sleeve. My men don't have a chance in hell winning that game. You know it. I know it. I just don't want them to know it. Okay? This is exactly what Warden Hazen wanted to hear. We see the cons team eating their fancy lunch together in the cafeteria, and Pop says it's been six years since he even ate indoors. He's just been eating in the lunch line, I guess, this whole time? When they're digging around in the swamp? Yeah, I mean, if he's... If they're always out outside, he's... Why do they even of... have a cafeteria <laughs> if the trustees can't eat in it? Caretaker announces that he's pulled off three amazing feats for crew. The first is a shipment of professional football equipment, and the second is the warden's own personal films of the guards team playing to study from. Crew asks about the third thing. Well, you don't want to ruin the surprise. Surprise? There is one thing, though. What's that? You're going to have to perform a personal service... Crew is called to the warden's office, and as soon as he's alone with the secretary, she explains that the warden is not here, and she has the films for him. We don't have a great deal of time. We have 15 minutes. She hands him the game films, and then immediately starts undressing. Like I said, we only have 15 minutes. And the surprise has revealed itself. Oh. Oh. We cut from them making out to the game films being projected in a storeroom as the con team watches it. 
We cut to the field where Shockner here is teaching the entire team martial arts moves. Next, we see Pop teaching them how to make a cast from Plaster of Paris on the field, I guess, <laughs> or have to make it on the sidelines during a game. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really know what the purpose of this was. I think it's just like if one of you breaks your arm, we're going to put you back in. So here's how you immediately address that. Yeah. Um, what? No, it's it's definitely to cheat, though. It's, it has nothing to do with their arms being broken. Then why are they wrapping their arms in plaster of Paris? That, so that you limits could, your mobility. You can't no, catch a so football. No, so you could smack somebody with your cast. It's to hurt the other people. Like greaves or something like that, right? Those, those things that call like they go around your, like around your wrist. I don't know what greaves are. Yeah. Is that what Shredder wears? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. Okay. But, yeah, like, like that. Like a gauntlet or like a. Well, yeah, but it, but it only covers like your so you can hit people with your. It's got big hooks yeah. on it, so you yeah, can yeah. cut size in half. Oh, awesome! <laughs> or those hay bales. <laughs> those eight hundred pound hay bales. <laughs> Caretaker shows the whole team x-rays of the bones of the guards so they know who to hit and where. Pop shows them how to use brass knuckles. Scarborough teaches them how to hurt the guards in a temporary way that they won't be held accountable for. They plan specific post-play injuries to give them an edge. Any man you tackle gets an extra elbow, knee, or kick in the mouth. Got it? Got it! That night, Caretaker presents Crew with some of his Raisin Jack, his latest vintage of toilet wine. Uh, I was like... I don't know why I got so excited. I was like, oh, sweet, toilet wine. Yum. <laughs> I made the note, to- toilet wine and more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. I don't know if that joke plays across the entire country. No, everybody has total wine and more. That's a global thing. It's like the word taxi. <laughs> Caretaker asks crew again to explain why exactly he shaved the points. I told you. For the money. No, no, I mean, come on, give me the real reason. If you really want to know. Crew launches into a story about his blind dad who never got to see him play. He thought going pro would give him enough money to take care of his dad for life, but before he saw any money from it, his dad died. He quickly admits that this answer is bullshit too, and essentially lands on an explanation that he could never really handle his life properly, and I guess chalked it up to a stupid mistake. The blind father backstory was supposedly borrowed from the real-life experience of at-the-time New England Patriot Jim Plunkett. The guards call lock it up, and everybody returns to their cells. Unger finds out from Knauer that Crew got him tossed out of the trustee system and back into Gen Pop, where he expects the men will kill him. During the next practice, Unger is not around, as promised, but we see him in Crew's cell, turning off the light bulb and filling it with gasoline or something flammable. I can't tell what exactly. The prison PA orders all prisoners back to their cells, but Crew hangs out with Scarborough for a bit to look at plays. He asks Caretaker to collect the guard's medical files from his cell, and as soon as he pulls the chain on the light bulb, it explodes and coats him in flaming gasoline. Unger tosses the cell door closed so nobody can help, and Caretaker burns alive. We hard cut to his funeral. I was not expecting this. Yeah, it gets crazy dark. And can you imagine in the Adam Sandler version, if it was just a silly football comedy and then suddenly Chris Rock catches on fire and dies and we cut right to his funeral? Because that happens too. <laughs> it's That's, like, it's what? Insane. This yeah. is out of nowhere. This is so dark. But like the rest of the film, I don't think goes with this tone right. of mm-hmm. this Not moment uh, before or after. It, it seemed to want to raise the stakes. Like, oh man, they're going to... Like, oh, but we forgot to make it a serious film prior right. to this yeah. moment. <laughs> In Mean Machine, instead of Caretaker, it's the pop character that takes the bomb for the protagonist. So Caretaker makes it through to the end of the movie, but he's called Massive instead of Caretaker. In the Adam Sandler remake, when Chris Rock's Caretaker pulls the bulb chain, nothing happens, and then he flips on a radio and it explodes and he catches on fire. We cut forward in time to just before the game, and the warden stops by the con's locker room to warn them against any foolish attempts to escape today, as extra guards have been posted for the occasion. So... If any of you are thinking of mingling with the civilians and wandering off with the crowd at the end of the game, we will shoot you. Do you guys recall the last time we saw prisoners forced to play a game against their own guards and then mingling with the civilians and wandering off with the crowd at the end of the game? (laughs) That's victory again. Escape (laughs) to victory or victory. I, I was really hoping, at this point, I was really hoping for that because... Again, with the death, I was like, oh, okay, they, they they need to really stick it to the warden now. Yeah. 
like worse than just winning this football yeah, game. It doesn't like, really matter. Exactly. Winning a football game is not enough yeah. of a satisfying ending for me. They actually do a better job of it in Mean Machine because the warden is like basically going to get murdered because he owes all this money. And so he bet on the guards. And then it turns out he's going to get killed at the end because he lost the game. Yeah, that's what this movie needed. But in this case, it's just like, oh, my pride is a little dented. Anyway, yeah. go back to killing whichever prisoners I feel like tomorrow. After the warden and guards leave the locker room, Crew presents his team, the Mean Machine, with the custom uniforms and equipment that Caretaker got a hold of before he was killed. So apparently these are the uniforms that were like the away uniforms for the guards, and then yeah. they just put Mean Machine on all of them. Mm -hmm. We cut to the field as a trio of prisoners in drag sing Born Free. They are flanked on each side by six more prisoners dressed as cheerleaders. These cheerleaders were actual inmates of the prison who were given special permission to appear in the film by the warden of Georgia State Prison. That's awesome. That's nice. I feel like that would not happen today. Yeah. We get a collection of split screen shots to introduce the players on the field, and somehow the guards recognize the team's uniforms as being stolen. They stole my new uniforms! Crew notices Scarborough is wearing a uniform under his jacket and suggests that he might take the field if Mean Machine finds themselves far enough ahead. The guards score a touchdown early. Granville blocks the extra point. On the next drive, Crew is tackled back into the end zone. The game continues to go the guards away for a while until a turnover when Samson falls on the ball. Eventually, Crew makes a touchdown and then fakes a kick before a successful two-point conversion. The Mean Machine take a moment to start throwing discreet punches at the guards. The first guy is hit hard enough that he can't count two fingers. How many fingers? Three. How many fingers? Three. Great. <laughs> they just walk <laughs> yeah. off the field. Samson makes a plan to clothesline guardsman Levitt and executes it beautifully. Hey, I think I broke his fucking neck. I think he broke his fucking neck. I told you I broke his fucking neck. I think he broke his fucking neck. <laughs> At halftime, the guards are up two points, 15-13. In the locker room, the Mean Machine are so happy about the injuries they've been allowed to inflict on their oppressors. The guards are getting chewed out in their locker room for only winning by a couple points against a team they should be embarrassing. Crew is summoned to a meeting with the warden that he should have known better than to attend. Just what the hell do you think you're doing? Well, you won the game, you got one. I never said anything about winning. Never said anything about losing, either. Warden Hazen says Unger has confessed to Caretaker's murder and is claiming that Crew was his accomplice. He will pin the charge on Crew and keep him at this prison for life unless he throws the game by a minimum three touchdowns. Knauer continues screaming at his team. You know who's beating you out there? Scum's beating you out there, scum! You know what that is? That's the lowest part of the world! Those are the criminals and the rapists and the murderers out there! And some of them, I assume, are good people. <laughs> On their way back to the field, Hazen informs Knauer that they will win by 21 points. It's all set, so it's time to start focusing on injuring the other team to teach them a lesson. Crew doesn't put much effort into throwing the game, and the Mean Machine are quickly onto him. Or parts of the team are. Yeah. You neglected to say that, that Crew only agreed to do it if they... If would, they don't hurt the rest of the team. If they laid off of him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crew throws a clean interception, and Scarborough assures him that they can still win this. The score is almost immediately 28-13 before Scarborough starts to accept that this is no accident. After a violent play, Crew limps off the field, and none of the team wants to sit anywhere near him. Another touchdown for the guards. 35-13. Knauer is reminded that they should be injuring prisoners with this time, and on the next play, one of them punches out a prisoner's teeth. It's killing Crew to watch his teammates ground into the dirt, and finally Scarborough calls him out. Hey, superstar, what kind of a deal did you make this time? Hmm? Well, what did Hazen promise you? And they're killing those guys out there. And you don't even care. Granville approaches to add his disappointment to the pile. As they take to the field again, Granville's collarbone is shattered by a hard hit. He's escorted past Crew on the bench. Satisfied now. Crew asks Pop if the last 30 years in this hellhole were worth punching the warden. Yeah, for me it was. Well, give me my goddamn shit. <laughs> Crew takes to the field again, and for the first few plays, the team leaves him in the wind, and he's hit hard, but he understands. After a few more, he's proven his intentions with a lot of rushing, and Scarborough tries to take the field only because he sees Crew's transformation. The guards make a plan to take Scarborough out of the game, but it's too late. Scarborough scores a touchdown before a guard comes in with a late hit to incapacitate him. After all these years, oh, 
<laughs> My first touchdown. <laughs> Gotta be his knee. I heard it pop clear across the field. The entire crowd is against the guards now. Scarborough is applauded on his way off the field. The Mean Machine go for the onside kick and recover the ball. The next play starts with a lot of laterals, and they cover a lot of ground with rushing. The next play is another touchdown, and we have an eight-point spread. The Mean Machine find themselves at fourth and four, and crew calls for a drop kick, a strategy that is almost never used in a real football game. It can be used for either a field goal attempt or an extra point, and instead of kicking a stationary ball or kicking it before it hits the ground, a drop kick means kicking the ball after it touches the ground. So you let go of it, and then the second it touches the grass, you kick it. It was a more popular surprise play back when the ball was rounder and the bounce was more predictable. The last time a drop kick was successfully used to score a field goal in an American football game was 1937. Four years later, in 41, a drop kick was used to score an extra point. In the intervening 82 years, only one successful drop kick has ever been performed. It was for an extra point. The kicker was Doug Flutie of Flutie Flakes fame then a backup quarterback for New England against the Dolphins in his last professional game. It was the last play of his career. Oh, really? Yeah. In the film, the drop kick is successful and the crowd goes wild, but the warden and guardsmen aren't even sure what just happened. I haven't seen one of those in 25 years. How about a ref? Let's go. What the hell was that? That was a drop kick. Drop kick. Drop kick. How much does that count? Three points. Three points? Three points. For that? Bullshit! 35-30. The last drive of the game, Crew gets a plan in place to destroy Bogdansky, the guy who buckled Scarborough's knee. They give him a wide berth so that he punches through the line, and Crew nails him in the junk with the ball. The rest of the team dogpile all over him, and the Mean Machine happily take a 15-yard penalty, and Bogdansky is dazed. On the next play, Mean Machine do the exact fucking same thing again. <laughs> work once, ought to work again, right? right. All right. One, more, one more time. Crew fires a laser into his dick, and again the whole team smashes him. Bogdansky doesn't even get up this time, and the cheerleaders perform a little funeral march number. According to the doctor on the field, Bogdansky isn't even breathing, and another player suggests mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Well, do something, man. Try mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. You want to? No way. I love how they edited this moment. I'm sure the guy thought his character was just grossed out and said no, but because yeah. they put a pause in there, it looks like he's thinking about it for a second. It's like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> Bogdansky is taken away in an ambulance. We cut to Granville and Scarborough in the hospital with their legs all bandaged up and their collarbone bandaged up and they're celebrating hearing that he's being taken off the field. On the next play, the Mean Machine are able to make up all 30 penalty yards for a first down. Mean Machine get the ball to the one-yard line, and Crew calls a timeout with 40 seconds left. The crowd is chanting for the prisoners. First down, and Mean Machine are pushed out of bounds at the one again, and Crew is scrolling through all kinds of trick plays in the huddle. Second down is an incomplete pass with 16 seconds left. For the third down, the play is a rush and goes nowhere, and they spend their last timeout with 7 seconds left to come back for the fourth and final down with some kind of plan. The play starts in slow-mo, Crew peels around to the right and has good blockers. He spins back to the left to lose more of the crowd. Time runs out and he keeps running to finish the play. Player number 65 running alongside Crew here is being played by Reynolds' actual brother. He jumps five feet into the air over a crowd of guardsmen and propels himself higher until he crosses the line into the end zone and the touchdown is good. 36-35, Mean Machine wins. In the Adam Sandler remake, Burt Reynolds' Scarborough actually scores the game-winning touchdown. Everyone loses their shit. A guard even congratulates Crew for a hell of a game. With no opportunity for immediate retaliation, Warden Hazen decides to pretend that Crew is trying to escape. He tosses a gun to Knauer and orders him to shoot the quarterback down. Crew! You gotta let him get away! Shoot him! Crew! Shoot him, you... Crew! Shoot him! Crew! Kill him! Kill that son of a bitch! Shoot him! Knauer never takes the shot, and Crew leans down and collects the ball before turning around and handing it to Hazen. Stick this in your trophy case. The film ends with Crew and Pop walking through the tunnel away from the field. Apparently, in the original ending, Knauer took the shot and kills Crew, but by the time production got to this final scene, it was clearly a different kind of movie. Yeah. That would be wow. insanely Except for dark. That one scene. Well, yeah. And I wonder if that would have, if that scene would have made more sense if this were the ending or vice versa. Yeah. 
But I still feel like that's the wrong way to end this story. Well, uh, and the warden's assistant says something like history, like to him. Because he, he's repeating what the warden said earlier. Right. But as he's walking away, he ejects the tape from his tape recorder. Yeah. So and It makes me think like you recorded that conversation we had in the tunnel earlier. Yeah. About how you clearly had nothing to do with this murder, but we're going to pin it on you and keep you here. Yeah, exactly. But they never really play that out. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the whole problem is they create a character who constantly records conversations yeah. that the warden is involved with, perhaps with the warden's knowledge. Or right. Because, per- again, going back to that first scene, he he hits record, but he's like hiding it. Right. And, and, and Burt Reynolds sees him and I was like, and Why are like, we getting all these inserts? Yeah, it's not going to pay off. Yeah, exactly. And and it doesn't pay off. Yeah, except for that one scene of him ejecting the tape. So you assume he's got some kind of leverage, but to what end we don't know. Right. It's like how Zootopia and Bright are basically the same movie because they're about like new kinds of cops that aren't typically cops getting partnered up with people who they wouldn't ordinarily get partnered up with, mm. and the whole film centers around a recording device that these people can record stuff on. But in at the end of Bright, they never record anything with this yeah. discrete recording device where I was like, well, this is going to be Zootopia over again, shot for shot, and they're going to use the recording device to prove someone said something, and then it doesn't it doesn't come back at the end. But I still liked Bright. <laughs> I still liked Bright as well. I can't wait for Bright too, if it ever happens. It's supposed to. After the production left Georgia, the prison actually made use of the equipment left behind to stage their own version of the film's game. Unfortunately, they underestimated the inmates who brutally pummeled the out-of-shape guards and the game was called at halftime (laughs) (laughs) 66-0. How would you not expect that to be the actual outcome? These guys are sitting here lifting weights for a living now. Mm -hmm. They're they're here all day working out and they beat the crap out of each other constantly and you guys are just like chasing donuts. Like, why did you think you were going to win this fight? I don't get it. Yeah. They hate you so much more than you hate them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's The Longest Yard. It's fun. I like it a lot. Uh, I don't like it a lot, but um, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's okay. I like Burt Reynolds here. I think this is one of He's his fine. better performances. I don't think there's anything bad about this movie, but I found it about as entertaining as just watching a football game for real sure yeah <laughs> especially because the game is like 42 minutes long or something like that yeah i'm like it's you know like it's as entertaining as football is which is entertaining mm. but that's about it and i do feel like there's <laughs> there's notes of marlon brando in his performance anytime you take the mustache off of burt reynolds <laughs> it feels very brando well and in the entire almost the entire second half is the football game right yeah um and and when I was checking like the runtime when the football game was starting, I was like, "There's still 40 minutes." <laughs> I was like, "What is?" They don't even leave this field in that time. Yeah, um, I think what threw me off was him roughing up that woman at the beginning. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is gonna be a fun movie." Right, but uh, in 1974, that was just like a funny tickle fight. I, yeah, I I think because again, Jesse, you were saying like, I don't know what this relationship is. I don't know what this is like. And and so I don't know I don't know who Burt Reynolds is at this point. Yeah, because uh, they're, they're trying to sh- she's trying to shout exposition at him as like I guess he's he used to play football but he doesn't anymore. And he cheated I, and now he doesn't have money. But there's a, this seems like an expensive place, so it must be yeah. her place. So they say that it's her car. Make sure that we we hammer on the point that it's her car. Right. And they they keep trying to have it's like well she slapped him first and then he punched her into a wall and threw yeah. her on the ground. <laughs> it's like no that's uh, that's not reasonable. It's not a reasonable response to that. You can't just be like oh well she hit him first. It's like okay we're not eight and she could have died from mm. anything he did here. And uh, I feel like Burt Reynolds would have gotten in trouble about the car but in the end he would probably have been okay but then when he starts just wailing on the police officers it's like okay well what do you what yeah do you... why are you doing this yeah I, I don't i don't get what your character is about yeah they could have easily just had these guys be asshole cops that were pissed off about him cheating the f- points on the football game yeah exactly like I... in, at the beginning of uh cool hand luke he's cutting the heads off of parking meters and the cops just find him and take him to a prison camp like mm-hmm. there's there's not like Oh, there has to be a reason for them to arrest him. It's like, no, he's already doing something super illegal. Just yeah. arrest him, take him away. That's it. 
yeah, I, I just didn't get enough of sense of, of who he was as a person. And then when he tries to build up character development, he he's like, oh, that story wasn't true. Right. It's like, well, we don't know anything about you then. Yeah. We don't know. Like, we don't know why you cheated at the game except for you don't care about anything. Right. That, 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 and I guess even, that's it. And you would think like, okay, well, he's transforming over the course of this because now he cares about this game and he cares about these players. And yet he can sit on the sidelines for a solid 15 minutes of this game and just watch everybody get destroyed Mm -hmm. knowing that it's like, well, at least I'm not going to be in jail for super long, even though they definitely will. Well, that's and that's the problem, I think, with the end of this movie is that there's no real lasting good to come out of any of this. Because they're all still in prison at the end and they could easily get their sentences doubled tomorrow. Uh, yeah, and at, at least in, you know, in, in Escape to Victory, they actually escape and right. uh stir crazy they know, actually escape. Yeah, but I I understand that they that these guys can't all escape here and 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 have it just be a happy ending, but I don't even think that there's a strong enough character arc here for like the other guards that I'm like they're mm-hmm. they're just going to turn around and be assholes again tomorrow. Right. But that's the weird thing about the Adam Sandler version is that after the football game, like William Fitchner comes over and he's like, hey, man, that was a good game. And I'm sorry about what the warden tried to do to you, like out of nowhere when he's yeah. been a complete monster for the whole film. And then suddenly he comes over and he's like, I like you. I'm a good guy now. You've turned me by mercilessly beating us in a football game. It's like that's not who this character is. That doesn't make any sense at all. But I, I agree that the warden is still in charge at the end of this movie. Yep. It's not like the end of Brubaker where some big investigation is underway. Yeah. It's yeah. like, no, he's going to he's gonna punish gonna, all these people yeah. for winning the game. A hundred percent. Their yeah. lives are going to be miserable tomorrow. Yeah. We, we, we needed uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Like, right. Yeah. The, the, the police closing in on him and him shooting himself in his office. Yeah, exactly. We, we needed something because just uh, otherwise he's just going to find some other reason to keep Burt Reynolds in prison. Right. Like he did, that's like why he they, did they, for that other guy. They like, could literally props. have had Paul Crew be the guy in the Longest Yard remake, and he's just still in prison from when he did this. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and they just switched the characters' names around. I saw somebody online today was saying that the most uh, the most shocking fact in the Shawshank Redemption is that the sewage line from the prison just goes into a local river. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? <laughs> well, we, well, I mean. I guess you hope that it's like, uh, like, like septic tank relief water. So it's like, you know, it's, maybe it's it's more water than it is solid matter, but it would still be terrible, Gray terrible. Water. Wa- yeah, no, it would be it would be black water. Yeah, but it but it wouldn't be like there wouldn't be big old turds and toilet paper and condoms and stuff. I think there's big turds in it. <laughs> yeah, big, big fat turds. Big old, big old turds in there. <laughs> yeah, big fat turds. <laughs> Well, I want to know why Why um, when he breaks open the thing, there's so much pressure. When he breaks open the pipe? Yeah, because it just it just erupts in his face. But then when he's in the pipe- Because it's... it didn't used to go to the river, there used to just be a cap on the other end. <laughs> People are just pooping as hard as they can to get it to go down the drain. <laughs> That's weird. I give it a thumbs up. I'll give it a, a, a thumbs up. I'm not. I'm not terribly convincing with that thumbs up. Am I? <laughs> it's not a bad movie. It's just yeah. not great. Um, it's a thumbs up, but it's a thumbs up because it's yeah. The the, the I, it's fine. It, it's fine. It's fine. I will probably never watch this movie again. Um, I don't think I'll ever really recommend it to anybody. I don't think but, Mean Machine is worth checking out either. Although. I think Longest Yard is fun just because of the cast. The the 2005 Longest Yard is fun because of the cast. And uh, so many of the prisoners are like, it's like MacGruber's team, you know? They have yeah. the great Kali is in there. Um, and uh, it's just a bunch of huge wrestler and football player people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just fun watching those people try to act. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's always amusing. And I like Richard Keel. Yeah. I'm glad that Richard Keel is in this movie. Yeah, he's great. Our director here was Robert Aldrich. Earlier this season, he was briefly attached to Death Hunt before he was removed from the position by producers. More recently, we saw his final directorial effort, All the Marbles. He has lots of high-profile titles like Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Dirty Dozen, Flight of the Phoenix, Emperor of the North, and The Frisco Kid. The writer here was Tracy Keenan Wynn. Tracy has a screenplay credit on The Drowning Pool, The Deep, and credits for this screenplay and the remakes Mean Machine and the 2005 The Longest Yard. He is the son of Keenan Wynn and the grandson of Ed Wynn. The story here came from Albert S. Ruddy. Uh, 
Yeah. So when I was looking up Tracy Keenan Wynn, I was like, okay, well, it has to be related to yeah. Keenan Wynn. But IMDb credits him with three parents. That's weird. <laughs> and I was and like, they're all men. What? <laughs> I was like, why does why does this person have three parents? That's very strange. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was it. That was just my note because IMDb has three. Parents None of them are step parents. They're all straight parents. Well, that's what I'm saying. Must one of them must be a, a step parent, like like Sean? But Ashton. it just doesn't indicate that. Yeah, it just says like parents, and it lists three names. That's weird. The story here came from Albert S. Ruddy, who also wrote Megaforce, Cannonball Run Two. I think he also created. Uh, Hogan's Heroes or something like that. He also created Walker, Texas Ranger, and he has a creator credit on all 196 episodes, a TV movie, and the recent Walker, Texas Ranger reboot entitled Just Walker, which already has 56 episodes, and I've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a show called Walker that's a reboot. Ruddy was a producer on Little Foss and Big Halsey, The Godfather, Aldrich's Death Hunt, Megaforce, Lassiter, Ladybugs, Million Dollar Baby, and Eastwood's latest effort, Cry Macho, where at 93 years old, he presumably has sex with three women in their 20s. I don't know. I haven't seen it. (laughs) He has two threesomes in the mule. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because he's Clint Eastwood. In the recent fictionalized miniseries on the making of The Godfather, called The Offer, Ruddy is portrayed by Miles Teller. The music here came from Frank DeVole. He was a composer on Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Cat Baloo, Aldrich's Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, from Logan's Run director Michael Anderson. And on the show so far, we've heard his work in Herbie Goes Bananas and Aldrich's Swan Song, All the Marbles. The cinematographer here was Joseph F. Barak. He was a DP on It's a Wonderful Life, 13 Ghosts, Bye Bye Birdie, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Die Hard Zero, a.k.a. The Detective, In the Heat of the Night 3, a.k.a. The Organization, and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. On the show, we've seen his work in Airplane, All the Marbles, and he's back next season for Airplane 2. The editor here was Michael Luciano. He also cut Kiss Me Deadly, The Flight of the Phoenix, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Dirty Dozen, Emperor of the North, and Empire of the Ants. So far on the show, he's cut Hardly Working and Stripes. He could have taken more out of Hardly Working. Burt Reynolds played Paul Crew. Reynolds had played for Florida State University prior to his TV and film career. He was Quint on Gunsmoke. Sam Whiskey, Navajo Joe, Fuzz, Hooper, Seamus, Shark, The Longest Yard, Deliverance, The Smokies, White Lightning, obviously Gator. Uh, oh, I, I even saw At Long Last Love. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought you were great. Really? I mean, well, I wanted to. Me too. We've also seen him so far in Rough Cut, Smokey and the Bandit 2, Cannibal Run 1, Deliverance, White Lightning, and Paternity. He has a cameo in Smokey 3. He appeared as himself in Archer episode The Man from Jupiter, in which he begins dating Archer's mother, and Archer pitches him a Gator sequel. Gator was a sequel. I know, and this will be the final chapter in the McCluskey trilogy. (laughs) Eddie Albert played Warden Hazen. He was Max, father of Susan St. James in How to Beat the High Cost of Living. He was Daggett, Cloris Leachman's dad, and fooling around. So that's funny, because she played... She plays the secretary in the Mm -hmm. remake, and that's good. He was Oliver Wendell Douglas on Green Acres, Mr. Corcoran and the Heartbreak Kid, and Irving Radovich in Roman Holiday. Uh, At the beginning of the movie, it says, you know, it's going through like the credits, and it's it's just Burt Reynolds and Eddie Albert. Interesting. Uh, uh, Then then it then it says also with, but but it's just they're the two biggest names. They're the two biggest names, but it just says Burt Reynolds. I said, okay, Burt Reynolds. And this and 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 Eddie Albert is like, we're already at the ands. Yeah, (laughs) it's a buddy comedy. Ed Lauder played Captain Knauer. We've seen him so far in Loose Shoes and Death Hunt. He also shows up in French Connection Two, King Kong Seventy Six, Real Genius, The Rocketeer, and True Romance. He's in so much stuff. He's great. Michael Conrad played Nate Scarborough. He was Sheriff Dunlop in the current Patreon poll contender Scream Blackula Scream, and we saw him last as an engineer in Catalani and Little Britches. James Hampton played Caretaker. This was Hampton's second of four collaborations with Reynolds after Fade In and 68, and the next year they were both in Hustle and WW and the Dixie Dance. He was originally cast as Unger and fought for the Caretaker role. We've seen him now in Hangar 18 and Condor Man, and he's the dad in Teen Wolf and the uncle in Teen Wolf 2, T-O-O. Harry Caesar played Granville. He was Coley in Emperor of the North. He's a bartender in Farewell, My Lovely. We've seen him so far in A Small Circle of Friends and as Al Tennyson, the airport chef in MacGyver episode Last Stand. 
He's also in A Few Good Men and Bird on a Wire. John Steadman played Pop. He was Stewbum in Emperor of the North. We saw him last in White Lightning and mentioned that he comes back for sequel Gator, but switches to playing Gator's dad, Ned McCluskey, in the second film. He was Sam and Fade to Black. He's also in two Choo Choo movies, namely Choo Choo and the Philly Flash and Chattanooga Choo Choo. Spelled differently, but they're both Choo Choo movies. Mm-hmm. Charles Tyner played Unger. He previously showed up as an asshole guard in Cool Hand Luke. He's Uncle Victor in Harold and Maud. Gus in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Robido and Jeremiah Johnson. We'll see him next as Colonel Kincaid in Evil Speak. Uh, he was also Merle, the uh, parental figure of the uh, Gogans in Peace Dragon. Oh, okay. There the, you the, go. The, the father of the Gogans. Like, That's it, the part where he sees Peace Dragon, he goes, Fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that scene. <laughs> Mike Henry played Rasmussen. He has experience playing for both the Pittsburgh Steelers and the L.A. Rams. We just saw him as Kulazik in Soylent Green and mentioned that he starred as Tarzan in a 60s trilogy of films. He's also Junior, son of Sheriff Justice in the Smokey and the Bandit films with Reynolds again. Bernadette Peters was the warden's secretary. She previously appeared with Reynolds in Mel Brooks' silent movie, though they had no scenes together. She's Marie in The Jerk. Later this season, she appears as Eileen in Pennies from Heaven and Aqua in Heartbeeps. And later, she voices Rita on Animaniacs. Yeah, I, I was looking her up. I was like, oh my God, was she the voice of Rita? The whole time, yeah. I, I never knew that. Purvis Atkins played Mawabe. He played for the LA Rams, the Washington Redskins, and the Oakland Raiders. Tony Cacciotti played Rotka. He's Gunther in Son of Hitler, and we've seen him so far on the show as Anthony Caselli in Hero at Large. Anitra Ford played Melissa, that's the girlfriend at the beginning of the film. She's Laura in Messiah of Evil, and Dr. Susan Harris in current Patreon poll contender, Invasion of the B-Girls. Michael Fox played the announcer. Supposedly, he wrote all his own commentary for the game. He has mostly voice work credits in titles like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Dunwich Horror, He's Helga's Father in Young Frankenstein, and Barack in MacGyver episode Every Time She Smiles. Joe Cap played Walking Boss. He played quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. We saw him last playing another football player in the game that ends MASH. After this, he also appears in Two Minute Warning, Semi-Tough, and The Frisco Kid. Richard Keel played Samson. Keel has referred to this as one of the roles he's proudest of, and I think this is actually the best work I've seen from him because he has some really <laughs> incredible comedic timing, and he yeah. actually gets some decent deliveries here. I don't know. I had to hit the golf ball, golf ball of Frankenstein's fat foot over there. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the, the back and forth of, yo, he did that on purpose. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. <laughs> that kills me. He credits this part with getting him cast on TV series Barbary Coast. He suffered from acromegaly, as does the great Kali, who plays the same part in Adam Sandler's version. He's also one of MacGruber's crew at the start of the film. Do you guys recall the last time we brought up acromegaly on the show? We haven't had Keel in anything else yet. We haven't had the great Kali in anything. It was in reference to Rondo Hatton, who we have also not had in anything. <laughs> but his name is paged inexplicably in the background of a film. Paging Rondo Hatton. Was it all the marbles? <laughs> nope. No idea. Demonoid, messenger of death. Mm. When she what? goes to Why? Vegas to find her husband, for some reason when he walks in, you hear her voice say, Aging Rondo Hatton, Rondo Hatton, please. I don't know how you expect <laughs> us to remember that. <laughs> well, I only said all the marbles because all the marbles has all those obnoxious constant yeah. paging in the and background. And it's the same director as this one. So maybe he just had acromegaly fetish or something. <laughs> what? Richard Keel also famously played one of the Canamits in Twilight Zone classic To Serve Man. He is likely best known as Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me, a character that was not intended to survive the film, but proved so popular with test audiences that he was rescued and written into follow-up Bond outing Moonraker. He's in Cannonball Run 2, Pale Rider, and memorably Mr. Larson in Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Pepper Martin played shop steward. He was Rocky, the trucker that Superman presumably murdered in Superman 2. <laughs> when he goes back with his powers and he's like, hey, trucker, dead. Ray Nitschke, 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 Ray Nitschke. How do I say it, Jess? Nitschke? Nitschke. Ray Nitschke played Bogdansky. He was the middle linebacker for 15 years with the Green Bay Packers, who admitted to targeting Reynolds during their plays on set. He also played a soldier in Monkey's movie Head. 
Sonny Sixkiller played the Indian. He was a quarterback for the University of Washington Huskies from 70 to 72 and a pro player in the now-defunct World Football League. Robert Tessier played Schockner. He was Chief Thor in Star Crash, Verdugo in The Sword and the Sorcerer, and Becker in a movie called Future Force starring David Carradine with a robot arm. It looks awesome. Hmm. Dino Washington played Mason. He was a bouncer in Farewell, My Lovely. Ernie Wheelwright played Spooner. He played with the New York Giants, the Atlanta Falcons, and the New Orleans Saints. Joe Dorsey was a bartender. He was Charlie Kittredge in Grizzly, Coach Spinks in The Great Santini, and we've seen him so far as a security guard in Hopscotch. Gus Carlucci played the team doctor. He was also the doctor in Gator. Sonny Schroyer played Tannen. He's in Gator, Smokey and the Bandit, and we saw him last in The Devil and Max Devlin as Big Billy Hunnaker. Ray Ogden played Schmidt. He played with the St. Louis Cardinals, the New Orleans Saints, the Atlanta Falcons, and the Chicago Bears. Chuck Hayward played Trooper Number 1. He shows up in High Noon, The Searchers, Spartacus, True Grit, Real Lobo, and he was Judd in Night of the Lepus. We saw him last as a passenger in Airport 77. He was Deputy Proctor in Tom Horn and Wald in The Legend of Lone Ranger. He also has credits in The Swarm and The Clonus Horror. Alfie Wise played Trooper 2. He's a regular Reynolds collaborator in films like Smokey and the Bandit, The End, Hooper, Hot Stuff, Starting Over, and so far on the show, The Cannibal Run as Batman, and Paternity as Cabby. They both come back for Stroker Ace in 83. George A. Jones played Big George. He reprises the role of Big George and Gator two years later with Reynolds and Stedman. Malcolm Atterbury played Bitpart. He was Deputy Al Malone in The Birds earlier this season. He is also Hogger in Aldrich's Emperor of the North. J. Don Ferguson played a football referee. He was Dean Whitler in Fast Food, Andy in Maximum Overdrive, MC in I Know What You Did Last Summer, and he's back later this season as Rally MC in Sharky's Machine. He was also Hawkins in The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which we hadn't located in time for this year's schedule. We've also seen him as a preacher in The Long Riders and as husband in Little Darlings. Lance Fuller played Secondary Role. He was Uncredited Chorus Boy in Singing in the Rain and Brack in This Island Earth. I think that's everything for The Longest Yard. Thanks again to Donovan Moser for their generous contribution to the show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. We leave you now with the trailer for The Longest Yard. Burt Reynolds, the electricity that turns on the most outrageous team in football. The mean machine, supercharged and power-driven to the longest yard. Burt Reynolds, the quarterback who will tackle anything. Driver's license. Oh, look what we got here, a miniature cop. <laughs> the superstar. Feels so good. Get off of me. The stud. <laughs> the All-American. <laughs> the All-Amazing. A joker of a jock who laughed all the way to prison. Paul Crew. The wrecking crew. <laughs> Anybody who is pro football's most valuable player has got something special. Jim, do it standing up. All right, let's move it. A hero so special, he gets special treatment. They'll put you in the oven. Rise and shine. Oh, it's room service. <laughs> How do you like the apples? Superstar. Shaving points off of a football game. Man, that's an American. <laughs> Get you 24 hours in the hot box, boy. I quit. <laughs> My God, what the hell is that? That's a member of the warden football team. And I run a football team. What football team? My football team. He assembled the meanest, dirtiest team in history. Uh, we're getting up a football game against the guards. With the guards? Yeah, I want to play. I'm going to play football. And taught them how to be meaner. The one thing that you're going to have to remember is to protect your quarterback. Me. Go! Get him out! Put him out and don't let him go! And 
dirtier. I think he broke his neck. I think he broke his neck. I told you I broke his Before this game is over, I want every prisoner in this institution to know what I mean by power. And who controls it? The prison guards against the prisoners they guarded. The game that broke all the rules, all the records, all the bones. The most incredible ever played, on the field and off. You're gonna lose the game, and I want a 21-point spread. We've come too far together to stop now. Let's do it. From the producer of The Godfather, from the director of The Dirty Dozen, from the first second to the last, the mean machine means it. Burt Reynolds, Eddie Albert, in the wildest yet. The longest yard. Thank you.